0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned in to Madcap. I'm Daniel Bloom and I'm David Ross. Aisha Tyler is polymathic, a jack of all trades. She originally appeared on my radar when I started to see her pop up in random places. I'd see her doing guest TV roles one day while flipping through the channels I saw her on Friends. I remember thinking to myself, a person of color on Friends? I must put down this remote. Next meet you know I'm seeing her in Kanye West Slow Jam's music video.
1: Kanye, I, yeah, I know. You know I told you to slow it down, baby. It's, good, so good. it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But, but now, I need you to do it faster, baby. Can please do it faster, baby? Do it faster.
0: Now, she's all over the place. You can find her every weekday on CBS's The Talk at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific and Central. She plays Lana on fx's archer she's on whose line is it anyway now in the cw and she also has which i consider to be her opus an extremely popular podcast called girl on guy a show about art culture booze and mainly blowing shit up she's now got a book out called self-inflicted wounds heartwarming tales of epic humiliation it was released on tuesday july 9th and we suggest you give it a read as it's damn funny i remember reading aisha's bio years ago in my college apartment And that's when I realized this isn't just some random woman who stumbled into some luck or just another recipient of some network's diversity initiative. This woman knows what the hell she's doing. Fast forward to January 2013, when I see her and her husband at an inaugural party in town. She, dazzling in the room in a beautiful blue dress, and her husband looking dapper as a motherfucker in his tux. I gave her a slight tap on her shoulder before she left, and six months later... After many schedule changes due to the filming of her new series, press tours, and her losing her voice, I'm proud to say we finally have our interview. This is our conversation with Aisha Tyler. Can you tell us about your first car?
2: Uh, My first car was a German car. It was a red opal Manta 4-speed stick that I bought for $1,250.
0: Really? Who'd you buy it from?
2: I don't know, some lady who had a like a for sale sign in the window of her car. Um, and after I bought it I remember this really mean boy at my school was like, Man, she saw you coming, but I love that car. It was like a little sports car. It had a like a stereo that cost almost as much as the car itself.
0: Would you um, would you awesome. play in that stereo during that period of time? Would you play?
2: Oh god. Uh, pretty much a, a boot like cassette tape of uh Prince's of time of to times over and over and over again. <laughs> I taped it off a boy that I was trying to get to sleep
0: with me. <laughs> was was that a success?
2: In retrospect, probably not, no. <laughs> but I wrote I wrote about it in my book.
0: I want to know, uh, I want you to tell us about the first story you ever wrote, whether it was via crayon or the first story that you remember and you can recall, and tell us about your first stand-up gig. So two separate.
2: Gosh, I don't even know what my first story was. I, I did, um... You know, I used to do, I my mom's a painter, and I'd take painting classes, and I think I used to do these paintings and then kind of write little kind of like primers or like explanatory legends, you know, like, she wants a rainbow, she likes cookies. So I think I might have done a little bit of that when I was young. I was a big reader. My parents didn't believe in television, so I was a voracious nerd, obsessed with science fiction and fantasy, and I would read under the covers oh, late at night, God. even um, a flashlight. So I loved reading. So I wasn't doing a lot of writing as a kid. I was just other people's work hysterically like I would walk down the street reading and I would read on the bus till I missed my stop and then turn around at the other end, and I would write, read on the back of my dad's motorcycle and, and it terrified him because I
0: almost fell off. You read I mean, on the back of his motorcycle. Ooh. That's an amazing oh, his, image. I, I love that.
2: Book, yeah I would put the book on his back and like read it on his back which he <laughs> loved as you can imagine because he's like always in fear of me of falling off to my doom while well, trying to figure out what was going to happen to Frodo and Bilbo. You know, I've done a lot of writing as an adult, but I mean, I think the first time I started writing was about six months before I did my first stand-up gig where I started writing in earnest and keeping a notebook. I hated journaling. I don't journal. I'm not not that much of a navel-gazer. I just want to, like, live and then com- either commit it to memory or forget it ever happened. But um, my first stand-up gig um, I write about in the book. It was out at a comedy club in San Francisco uh, called the Holy City Zoo, which is now defunct. Um, it, was, it was the only place you could get up if you were a very... New comic in the Bay Area at that time, and you had to wait in line, and you had to pay money to get on stage. You had to pay two dollars for three minutes. Nice and, racket, um, Yes, yeah, very nice racket. Just, just just the smell of money and desperation, you know, <laughs> and um, just the filthy lucre of sadness. And then I, um, I was last. I got there very late, and so I was last in line. So I went up last. There was nobody in the audience but my husband and the bartender, and um, and maybe like one other. Maybe one the comedian had gone up before me, and I. You know, did three minutes of just, like, really piss poor material and got one laugh and was like, well, this is clearly what I'm destined to do. And then that was that was it. Just took one set, and I was I was hooked.
0: Uh, and this is a Dan Bloom question. Do you have a—do you remember a, the best night of stand-up that you've done?
2: Well, I, I love stand-up, so every night is a good night. But I will say that I think that— um, a memorable night was when I did my comedy special, my first comedy special, you know, I, I, sh- I went home, I did it at the Fillmore in San Francisco. I love comedy, I love doing comedy. It's just like the best job I could ever choose for myself, I just love it. And it's cool because I get to travel, I get to meet cool people, and I love that because I was not a cool kid, right? I was a very, very dorky kid. I'm six feet tall, and yes, and I've pretty much been this tall since preschool, thank you. <laughs> Nothing better than being six feet like the second grade, that's awesome. And I was also the first and only black kid in my school. Oh yeah, during Black History Month, I was the exhibit. Thank you. That <laughs> was going They're like, "How hey, we have the Negro in her natural habitat." She's gonna tell us all about her people, and then we're gonna touch her hair. <laughs> only black kid, only tall kid, only poor kid. I used to come out on playground at recess just. Like a giant, furious Blackzilla, <laughs> Just stomping people's sandcastles and kicking
1: toys.
2: Come back, tiny white girls. That was pretty incredible. And sold out, it was packed, I got a standing ovation at the end of the night, I didn't mess up any of my jokes, I felt mentally strong, physically strong. You know, I only did one set, I only taped one show, so if it didn't go well, I didn't have anything to fall back on, and I just, I, I just destroyed, and it was just, a, like, a very, like, a beautiful moment in time, and also, I had gone back to my old hotel to do this show, you know, a place where I didn't get any traction as a comedian when I lived there, and a lot of people I'd gone to high school came, and so I was able to tell all the Mean Girls to suck it, so that was really fun, that like, sweet. all around. Yeah, it was pretty great, It's pretty great.
0: What was the music that was playing in your head triumphantly as you stepped off stage?
2: Well I was listening to Rocky, uh, Gonna Fly Now, the Gonna Fly Nothing from Rocky on the way on stage. Which because that, that's that's a this kind of it's not Apocrypha, it's this circle story circulating in the comedy community that when Chris Rock got ready to do his first comedy special he ran into um, Andrew Dice Clay in a mall in like Atlanta buying underwear or something and he was saying he was getting ready for like the comedy special that changed his life, you know, and and Dice told him to go watch Rocky and like be thinking about Rocky when he did his special. And so now, so then Chris told that story to Jeff Ross, and Jeff Ross was getting ready for his special right before I was getting ready for my special. So he and I were sharing all these notes. Like, wait, I was you know getting advice from him, and we were kind of talking about our process. And he told me that story. And so and then right before I was walking out on stage, I was listening to Bill Conti's "Gonna Fly Now." So when I walked off, that was pretty much what I was I was hearing in my head.
0: And that is also the song that you ended your uh, interview with Chris Rock with, wasn't it?
2: Yes. The songs on my shows always have some tenuous relationship to the conversation that's gone previously. Like, it's a, it's it's a little bit of an Easter egg. Like, I like to put something in that people have to figure out. Oh, how does this relate to what those guys uh, were talking about? And, um... And so it's a little fun puzzle for people to work out. But that was pretty bald because we had spoken about that story and about Dice and about the fact that i had listened to that song during my special. So it seems an obvious choice to put at the end of the Chris Rock episode.
0: So I do want to talk uh, about self-inflicted wounds in the comedy career. But I also want to, t- I- I mean, I want to know what was it like talking to Chris Rock for Girl on Guy? How was that?
2: It was amazing. You know, I've been trying to get Chris on my show for at least a year. We're friendly, but I couldn't say that we were friends. We're definitely friendly. You know, he's a very, you know, he's, he's our royalty. You know, he's comedy royalty right now, I think, probably more than anybody else. You know, there are guys who are older, guys who have come before, maybe guys have retired, but I don't think anybody's more influential or more kind of, has more Quan than Chris has in this business.
0: Do you have a favorite Chris Rock special? Uh,
2: The first one was so radicalizing for everyone um, and for the pain. I, I think it just, it changed everything for everyone. Every young comedian wanted to be Chris Rock after that special.
1: Cause I'm in there, figure, let me take some shit I know. So I took a black history class. I gotta know this, right? I'm black, right? right? I get a B just for showing up, right? Wrong. Failed it. Ain't that some sad shit? A black man fell in black history. That's sad. Because you know fat people don't fail cooking. As paprika. Rica, black history. Why? Because I didn't know shit about Africa. You know, you go to white schools, you learn Europe up their ass. Never learn shit about it. I still don't know shit about it. Only thing I know about Africa, it's far. (laughs) Africa is far, far away. Africa is like a 35-hour flight. So you know that boat ride was real long. The boat ride's so long, there's still slaves on their way here. I didn't know nothing in school. All I knew was Martin Luther King. That's all I ever teach you in school about black people. Martin Luther King. That's my answer to everything. Martin Luther King. <laughs> but what's the capital of Zaire? Martin Luther King. Uh, can you tell us the name of the woman that would not leave her seat on the bus? Ooh, that's hard. Are you sure it was a woman?
2: Oh, I got it. Martin Luther King. That's a great special. Remains a great special, I think.
0: While we're on the topic of growing guy, tell us about the an interview that went it might not have been your fault you know what I'm saying <laughs> other things could have just happened but tell us about an interview that just went completely wrong i you can, anon- you can anonymize it if you want yeah.
2: well we've only had one we, I, and it's, it's never posted and I don't think I'll ever post it
0: but you can you can tell um, us we won't tell anybody
2: uh, yeah of course because this is just the we i talking
0: right. um, I won't
2: <laughs> tell you who it is I'll just say I interviewed really early in the life of the show I interviewed a chef who just was kind of like a pop ass and I think you know, just was, he's really talented, but I think he just felt like he was super awesome and was kind of doing me a favor. And you know, the show wasn't established yet, so as far as he knew, you know, he was doing me a favor. But he just never was. He never told the truth. You know, I'm saying he was a liar. But I mean, a big part of the show is that people get into the room with me and they kind of let all their guard down and they just they're honest. And I think that's why people love the show. And I think that's why my guests love the show because it's a rare opportunity to be really truthful. And he just, you know, he just was kind of like you know thought he was doing an interview for the Food Network or something so that show's never aired
0: so back to the book I want to know what's your process like now are you a a cup of coffee in the morning uh something much stronger like Doors or psychedelics
2: um uh you
0: don't have to what, answer that question what, by the way what
2: what fuels my creativity yes um, yes I am disappointingly straight edge I've never been a big drug person I you know I kind of Diddle, diddle, my, my, my whatever limited experimentation I was going to do, I did when I was, you know, high school, college age, and and came out of college pretty much not interested in doing anything illicit or illegal. Um, I love booze, and I'm a big spirits enthusiast, but I also I also stopped drinking for a while, and then when I went back to drinking, my drinking has become very minimalistic since then. Um, I uh, I just. I, what I found is that now in my life, it, it has not less to do with my a function of my age, and more to do with the fact that I have so much work on my plate that I'm not effective if I'm not like at 100 percent, like every single minute that my eyeballs are open. So, um, you know, I just got sick of even with like you know one drink or a glass of wine, waking up in the morning and not being like a razor. For the most part, I've stopped drinking altogether, for, like a once in a you know once a, once a month or something like that. I'm and I you know I go, I like I really like to be in bed by 8:30. And I get up at five in the morning and I drink a, a pound of protein shake and I hit the gym. So I'm really very boring. I, I get high on uh, on life and an, and an insane, almost life threatening amount of caffeine.
0: And so in your book, you said nobody parties, not nobody parties, that Dartmouth is a place that knows how to party. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, take me take me to one of those nights. I want to I I know what one of those nights entailed.
2: God, uh, what is it, what, what, those nights were just go to, uh, go to a basement in an old house, a 200-year-old house that smells like urine and vomit and, uh, stand around drinking keg beer out of cups and occasionally get a beer poured for you by a distracted fraternity brother that may or may not have, have had the saliva and tobacco juice of another human being in it directly prior to him filling it with beer and handing it to you. And then uh, either fend off the advances of some guy you're not interested in, or push yourself on some guy that's not interested in you. Um, <laughs> and uh, either hook up or go eat a, eat an EBA's chicken uh, chicken sandwich at like two o'clock in the morning.
0: You talked about while, while your time at Dartmouth, you were part of an acapella group. Now I will ask you to sing in a little bit, but was this uh, acapella group? Was this the? Did you get a lot of male groupies from this? Uh,
2: no, but from from my acapella group at Dartmouth, no. I love no. that question. And when,
0: when, when I no. think of, when you describe this acapella group, I thought of, you saw Trading Places, right?
2: <laughs> uh, yes.
0: Arc- when they're singing yes, in the that, country club.
2: That, that creepy and a beat, absolutely. <laughs> that off-putting, um, in every way, totally. Luffy in the bathroom stall, Margaret by the lake,
1: Susan down in Whitley Hall, Constance on the make, Constance Fry, Constance Fry, any time you'd call, Constance would fulfill your needs, winter, spring, warm, fall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Can you sing us a jingle?
2: Really? Uh... We'll you join right cute. in. I'm not a busker. My hat is not out. i like throwing quarters in my hat and trying to get me to perform. Okay, wait. I'll start. I'll start. Goodbye, my Coney Island. Maybe. No, we didn't, do, we didn't do any of that. We didn't do barbershop stuff. We were a big group. Did you see that movie, uh, Pitch Perfect? Seems
1: like everybody's got a price. I wonder how they sleep at night. When the sale comes first and the truth comes second, just stop for a minute and smile. Everybody look to the left. Everybody look to the right. Can you feel that? Yeah,
2: i playing with love
1: tonight.
2: We were like that. I ain't
1: ever about the money.
0: I want to, I want to know so you have you close your pieces with having the uh with having people talk about self-inflicted wounds and that's of course that's the top of your book but I want to know releasing these self-inflicted wounds for yourself how does that make you feel like airing you know, I'm saying these humiliations how does that make you feel
2: it's freeing I really think that like the best thing to do with things that have things that are happening in life that are embarrassing is to adopt an uncompromising sunshine policy and put everything out there in the open, because when you have secrets, especially secrets that are embarrassing, A, they kind of wound you psychologically, and B, they can be used as weapons against you by people that mean you harm. So, Mm. you know, it's always better if you can be like, "Oh, oh, my God, I was such a jackass last night before someone else is like, oh my God, you were such a jackass last night. You know, you, it's your, you own it. And I was teased a lot as a kid and and bullied a lot. And, and, you know, part of probably one of the reasons why I'm a comedian now is because I was like, well, I'm going to make fun of myself faster and better than you ever could before you ever even get to it. I'm going to rip myself so, so, so well and so funnily that you are just going to have to shut your mouth. And so I think that's part of it is that you just, you tell these stories, it's a huge relief. You're not holding them in. They lose their power over you. Other people lose their power over you. And everybody loves the guy. You know, no one wants to hang out with the guy that runs into the bar after work and is like, oh, my God, guys, I nailed it at work today. Aced the presentation, got promoted. I got a new suit. Look at my office. Everybody wants to punch that guy in the neck, right? But everybody loves the guy who comes running in like one shoe and one bare foot totally damp with his pockets turned out and goes, oh, my God, guys, I think I just set my house on fire. Have you seen my puppy? Everybody wants that guy to sit down and like, <laughs> tell him, like, dude, dead. We'll buy you a beer. Tell us what happened. So um, those are the best stories. And I've always been, you know, my friends and I are always, combination of self-deprecating and like really like searingly insulting to each other and so in my group it was always better to make fun of yourself before anybody else could uh could unload on you and uh so i loved it it was great it was very freeing
0: okay well we got uh, just we've got just two more questions all right uh okay. this is a bit of a personal question we always ask this to comedians but um would you please tell us the story the losing of virginity for aisha tyler's story <laughs>
2: Ha, ha, ha no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that uh it was I was I was um forgettable and quickly faded into the past in favor of much more exciting episodes that happened happened after that. But no, nothing nothing worth nothing worth recreating in vivid detail for you right now on the internet. That's for sure.
0: Okay. And is there a quote that you cuz you uh, every chapter was open with a quote in this book. Is there a quote that you'd like to to open the show with when we release this?
2: Oh, well my favorite quote My favorite quote from the book is from the great poet and writer Rocky Balboa, (laughs) which is that it's not how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving
1: forward.
0: Aisha, uh, so much thanks coming from Washington, D.C. to you. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
2: Glad that we were able to finally put this together. I know there was a lot of uh, a lot of machination, and, and thank you for yeah, being patient. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, Shout out to Jerry for handling it
2: all. I will. I will. I'll let him know. I'll let him know you're guys are sending him some love.
0: If you ever make it back to Washington, we'll buy you a bourbon. You don't even have to drink it. We'll just sit there and look at it.
2: Oh, I've never turned out a bourbon. I just, I, I've stopped drinking like five bourbons.
0: So, yeah. We'll we'll order five. You only have to drink one. Yeah, 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 you guys,
2: you order five, and then I'll watch you drink five, and then I'll pick your pocket.
0: Perfect. (laughs) Nice. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aisha. We appreciate it. Have a good one. You You too. Bye-bye. Thank you.
2: Bye.
1: Madcap is produced by David Ross, Daniel Bloom, and Afim Shapiro.